0: going to read from 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the place of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed in soul, and because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed and turned away his face, and he would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will give you no vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Well, good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Good, good. That's good. Uh, you, can, you can talk back to me. It's okay. It's allowed, but it's good to, it's good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed. I'm the campus pastor here at Luther Campus. Joy to be here with you. Uh, if, if you haven't been with us, if you're new again, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we have been journeying through uh, portions of 1 Kings, looking at the life of uh, Elijah the prophet and, and King Ahab. Uh, and we've been exploring all these various themes that we see in the scriptures. And this morning, we turn uh, our attention to this kind of narrowed-in focus of, of an interaction between King Ahab and Naboth, who we'll jump into and look at. But, but by way of kind of introduction, as we, as we look at that story, um, some of you may know my, kind of my family dynamic. I'm the fourth of five kids, large family. And, and one thing I know about families and siblings, every family has that one kid who's, like, obnoxiously aware of, like, fairness and justice and rules, you know. Like, it's the kid that, you know, if you're splitting a cookie, they get out, like, a T-square and a scalpel and scales, you know. Like, all right, this is the one. And, and I was for sure that kid in my family. I was the rule follower. I wanted to make sure that things were fair and right and just. Not because I had a real care for justice. I just wanted to make sure I was getting things that I deserved and earned. And, so, and in my family, my immediate family, my, my daughter Jane is very much the rule follower, the fairness, justice upholder. And, and there's this great little interaction we had a couple weeks ago. Um, so we have a rule in our family called dessert days. And dessert days, so we don't have dessert every night. I know, I'm a terrible parent, I'm sorry. Uh, but we have certain days where we have dessert. And, and that kind of keeps us from having arguments about what we're eating and how we're having dessert or not. And so one night, it's not a dessert day, and we put the girls to bed, and Megan and I went down to the kitchen and proceeded to eat some ice cream together. <laughs> be- be- because dessert days only apply to children. I think you know this. Uh, so sorry, sorry, kids. Adults were terrible. We're terrible people. So so Megan and I were enjoying some ice cream, and Jane comes running downstairs, and she says, Dad, Mom, Pearl's nose is bleeding. Pearl's our other daughter. She comes down, Pearl's nose is bleeding, and then she stops and looks at us. (laughs) And she goes, today's not a dessert day. (laughs) And she knew, like she just had this keen awareness that this this injustice was taking place before her very eyes. And the best part, I love that like what was so important was that blood is coming out of my sister's nose. Wait a minute, you're eating ice cream. Like, that was more important to her. And so we're like, oh, whoa. So I just, I, I blamed Megan and then went and dealt with Pearl. Uh, no, just kidding. But, and I share that because, I mean, some of us do have a more keen awareness of fairness and justice than others, but, but we all do sense it. We, we feel when something is happening either to us or to others that something is not fair. We see an unfairness, we see an injustice, and we know it, we're aware of it. We feel it in in the playground. We feel it in our places of work and relationships. We all have this awareness of justice and unfairness, and we all have a desire for justice. We want to see wrongs righted. We want to see the guilty punished and the innocent defended. We all sense this, and yet there's this interesting tension that I think we as Westerners have is that we also kind of balk at the idea that God, if there is a God, that he would be a God of justice. We like the idea of justice abstractly, we like the idea of fairness and people getting what they deserve, but when it comes to the idea of God, we we like the idea of Him being loving and merciful, but this idea of justice and wrath and judgment, not so much. And and I think that's a double standard, there's something we're not holding correctly, there's a tension that we're experiencing, and there's a tension I want us to press into as we turn to our text this morning in 1 Kings chapter 21. And as we turn there, what I, what I want us to see, the tension I want to create for us is centered around this, this basic idea, and that's this, is that each and every one of us, we should be thankful for and afraid of judgment. We should be thankful for and afraid of judgment, which seems strange. How do we hold those things together? I think we're going to see that in our story, but before we jump in, I want to pray uh, for our time as we hear from God's word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we ask, Lord, that, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us who you are, Lord, that you've shown us the way in which life is lived best in accordance with your design for life. And so, Lord, would you, would you give us clarity? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Lord, would the, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and accepting to you? We pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So, First, uh, First Kings twenty-one, um, it, we are introduced to a character by the name of Naboth, and, and Naboth is this guy. I, I think I think you'd all love Naboth. Naboth is, is kind of not that dissimilar from your next door neighbor. You know, honest, hardworking guy. You know, he, he has a family business. He's been working in this vineyard. You know, that has been in his family for generations. Just honest, hardworking. I think I think you'd really like him. He's the kind of guy who would return tools if you borrowed them, stuff like that. Um, he doesn't keep up his Christmas lights until Easter. You know, he's a good neighbor. Um, but but ah- uh, Naboth has the unfortunate situation of being neighbors with King Ahab. And Ahab's that neighbor who wouldn't return your power tools. He's that guy who just, yeah, you just wish you lived somewhere else. And Ahab comes to Naboth, kind of peers his head over the proverbial fence, so to speak, and says, hey, Naboth, that vineyard of yours, it's pretty. I like it. Give it to me. He essentially demands that, that Naboth give him the vineyard. But then, I mean, uh, Ahab does finally say, okay, I'll I'll, I'll pay you for it. I'll offer you a a better vineyard. How about that? Is that okay? And and Naboth refuses. He says, God forbid that I give you this vineyard because it's been a part of my family for generation, generation after generation. Now, what's interesting, it's it's not just Ahab coming to offer a business transaction. You see the greed and the entitlement in Ahab. The, The reason why he wants the vineyard the text says it's just, just because it was close to his palace. Ahab sees this vineyard, says, behold, I want this, it's near my palace, give it to me. You see the greed and the entitlement of Ahab as he just assumes he can take whatever he wants. And Naboth stands against him. And what makes matters worse is that Ahab, what he wants to do, he wants to turn the vineyard into a vegetable garden. Like that's worthy enough of judgment. That's terrible, that's a terrible idea, you know? <laughs> Exchange wine for kale, ugh, this is <laughs> disgusting. But, but, but in all seriousness, Ahab, Ahab hears Naboth's word. I mean, Naboth, I mean, he knows who Ahab is. He knows the, the, the vile king that is threatening him, He's, who's offering this business transaction. Naboth says no. And Ahab actually responds by going back to his house, kind of jumps in bed and throws his head in his pillow and just cries and weeps. He's just depressed, which is like, boy, who is this guy, you know? and so And so then if you thought Ahab was a bad neighbor, Jezebel comes to comfort her husband in this moment as he's crying and, and perplexed and depressed. And, and, and Jezebel's like, sweetie, what's wrong? Baby, what's going on? Boo, where'd you go? And he's, she's trying to comfort him. And Ahab, Ahab basically says, well, Naboth didn't give me his vineyard. I wanted the vineyard. He didn't give it to me. He's just, he's just whining like a baby. And Jezebel, knowing, knowing the love language of her husband of greed and entitlement, she, she devises this plan... <laughs> She devises a plan to try to get him what he wants. And notice what the text says in verse seven. So this is what Jezebel says. She comes to Ahab comforting him. And she says, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread. Let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now there's other translations that that translate that verse that says, now exercise your royal power over Israel. Which means what what Jezebel is advising Ahab to do is to say, look at your power. Look at who you are. You're the king of Israel. Take whatever you want. Use your power for your own benefit and gain. And so Ahab listens to Jezebel. And then Jezebel goes on to form this plan to try to get Naboth's vineyard, to give it to Ahab. A plan that involves deceit, perjury, forgery, and ultimately murder. And this is the plan that Jezebel offers to bring the vineyard to Ahab. And and, and the scripture is so clear. I'm not not trying to exaggerate it or to make the situation worse than what it is. Notice what the text says. Eight through 11 says this. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name. So you see this deceit. You see this forgery taking place. She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the table, and set two worthless men, or some translations say wicked men, essentially two men who would be willing to give a false accusation. So set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. So this plan that Jezebel puts together to try to give her husband what he wants, she follows through with it. This isn't just an abstraction. This isn't just a theory or an idea or a daydream. Jezebel sees it through to the end, to the great unjust end of Naboth's innocent blood being shed. And in this moment, what, what you and I should be feeling right now is this sense of righteous anger. Like we should be seeing the story of of a king, a holy king, no less, who's supposed to be the king of Israel, abusing his power, letting his wife abuse his power and take his seal and convince people that Naboth the innocent is actually guilty. To paint Naboth in a picture of being a criminal, because you see, the king of Israel could not just take any land he wanted, Israelite rule essentially said that unless that person was determined to be a criminal and executed, then the king could take the land. And so what does Ahab and Jezebel do, or the, the power couple known as Jezeheb, if you want to call them that? They, they, they take their power and abuse it and say, we will make Naboth, the innocent one, we will make him a criminal so that we can execute him, so that we can take what we want. And so here's the thing, this story should instill within us righteous anger. We should look at this and say, this is not right. This is an injustice. Someone should do something. You should be feeling that right here. And if you're not feeling it, you're either sleeping or you have no moral compass or both. You know, like we we should be looking at this and saying, this is wrong. It should not happen. But before we begin kind of waving our finger and kind of looking down on on Ahab and Jezebel, we have to understand that, that all of us, maybe not to this degree, We are all guilty of abusing the powers that we have. You see, the reason why Ahab and Jezebel got to the point where they could essentially justify the death of an innocent person is because they thought they were above the law. They saw their power and they abused it for their own benefit and gain. So the question we should ask ourselves is this. Are we aware of the power we have? Are we aware of the ways in which we abuse our power for our own benefit and gain? And how it is sometimes at the expense and the exploitation of others. Regardless of our age, regardless of our our income, regardless of where we live, uh, regardless of, of our race or religion, all of us have power to some degree. I don't care if you're six or 66, we all have power and influence over someone or something. The question we should ask ourselves is, are we aware of that power and do we see the ways in which we abuse it for our own gain at the expense of other people? So l- let, me, let, me, let me put it in this way. If you think of various examples, we all have power, we all have certain positions we have, we all have certain privileges that we can either look at and say, these are mine for my own good and gain, or we can say, these are gifts given to me to be stewarded for the good of others. So for example, think of uh, the power of intelligence. The power of intelligence, some of us have that, some of us don't, uh, and so I won't say who, but, but we all have some, some level of intelligence. And this, this power has the great capability of, of providing instruction and wisdom and insight for others to, to help better their lives. But this power can also be abused to humiliate other people, to, to condescend or to manipulate them. We can flex our intellectual muscles to make others look stupid and dumb so that it elevates our status in their eyes. The power of of intelligence can be abused. Some of us have the power of of finances, a a power that has great capability of of, of increasing economic capacity, of of funding amazing and meaningful initiatives in our world, uh, of producing jobs, of, of providing means and opportunities for individuals, institutions, even, even nations to, to come out of poverty, but it is also a power that can, that can corrupt us, where we see our finances and our resources as things for our own benefit and gain, for our own personal compensation over and above compassionate contribution. This power can be abused and distorted. Some of us have the power of certain skills or abilities And and we can look at these skills and say, I've been given these things to to serve and to bless others or to instruct others to know how to use these skills so that they might be more self-sufficient and independent. Or we can look at our skills and from that position, look down on others who aren't as skilled as us and say, I'm good at this and you aren't, so therefore I'm on a different level than you are. And we can use this to create some kind of metric of a person's value and worth and contribution. We all abuse powers in certain ways, or perhaps some of us identify with the power of connections, that we have certain networks and relationships, that that we know certain people who who can provide opportunities for people to advance in their vocation and their jobs or in their relationships or in finding a home. We all have certain connections, and and we can use that for the good of others, or we can hoard that and say, no, I'm, I'm going to use my resources, my connections, for my own gain to climb this ladder and not see it as an opportunity to provide for others. Or we can even hide, hide that, that power of connections and say, no, I mean, I mean I, I'm not benefiting from someone else's connections. I, 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 you know, I, I'm a self-made man or woman. I, I've been here, I've accomplished all that I have, all because of me, but I mean, there's not a person in this room who doesn't have a job or, or some kind of resource that has been provided through another connection you had. We all have various powers, positions, and privileges. The question is, are we aware of them? And are we aware of how we abuse them? I think in many ways we would be wise to heed the words of the historian George Burton Adams. Maybe you've heard this quote before. But he says this, he says, "...there is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. We are made up of thousands of others. Everyone who has ever done a kind deed for us or spoken one word of encouragement to us has entered into the makeup of our character and of our thoughts and as well as our successes." We have to see that we are not completely, fully independent, self-sufficient. We have all benefited from the connections, the skills, the finances, and the intelligence of others. Or perhaps maybe we resonate with, with the le- language of the, the great theologian Barry Switzer, who is really more known for being the OU head coach, but, but Barry Switzer said this, he says that some people are born on third base and they go through life thinking they hit a triple. It's this idea that you, you, you think like, no, I, I hit a triple, but no, you were born on third base. Don't take credit for things that were given to you by someone else. We all have to see that we have powers. We all have positions. We all have privileges. What do we do with them? And in many ways, the reason why, as I said, that Ahab and Jezebel abused their powers, the reason why they got to the point where they could justify the death of Naboth is because they were drunk on power. They were drunk on this desire uh, of entitlement. They thought that they were above the law and that they could use their powers in whatever way they wanted. This is the danger of power, that it has great capabilities of good and great capabilities of destruction and corruption. And there's a phenomenal book I would recommend to you by Andy Crouch, It's, it's called Playing God, and it's all about essentially the abuse of power and the use of power properly. And in it, Crouch has these insightful words. He says, power at its worst is the unmaker of humanity, breeding inhumanity in the hearts of those who wield power and denying and denouncing the humanity of the ones who suffer under power. You see, it's not just, the corruption of power is not just that we abuse it, but that we fail to see that our abuse of power exploits and damages other people. This power ultimately will put everything around it to death rather than share abundant life with another. I say all of this again, not to say, you're all Jezebels, you're all Ahabs, you know, quit abusing your power to that degree. We're not at that degree, I hope not, but we would be naive to think that we don't abuse the powers God has given us in various ways to gain for ourselves when we should be seeing our powers, positions, and privileges to bless others, to magnify God's creation, to serve the common good of all, and to glorify His name. So what I, I, I wanna, let's, let's b- briefly return to our story, because again, we see Naboth being abused, taken advantage of, and, and ultimately murdered for an unjust cause, all just because Ahab wanted carrots close to his house. Like that's, that's the driving desire. And this led to the death of the innocent. So what happens to Naboth? Is there justice for Naboth? So Jezebel, returning to our story, she, she comes to Ahab with the good news of her successful plan. And she basically tells him, look, Naboth is no longer. He's out of the way. Take his vineyard. It's yours. And notice what the text says in verse 16. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. There's not a moment of guilt or, 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 or remorse or a sense of, of second guessing. Is this the right thing to do? You see this immediacy. It's just, oh, he's dead. He's gone. Great. I can take the vineyard. There's no moment of realizing what he's done is wrong. There's no sense of conviction. There's no guilt. There's no realizing that he is underneath the power and the authority or the law of someone else. In this moment, I mean, the ground, the dirt is still wet with the blood of innocent Naboth. And all Ahab can think about is, man, I can't wait to turn that vineyard into a garden. That's all he cares about. In this moment... Again, we should be feeling a sense of righteous anger, of this is wrong, this is an injustice, someone do something. And yet, it doesn't mix well with our conventional way of thinking about God, that God, God's not a God of justice and anger and wrath. No, he's a God of love and mercy and kindness, and that's it. You know, God's full of cupcakes and rainbows and all those things, but but being a God of justice, no, that doesn't bode well with me. But in this moment, we are faced with this tension that we demand justice for Naboth, and all Naboth's out there. But what do we do with our understanding of a God of justice? And so in this moment, God shows up and he sends Elijah the prophet to be his mouthpiece against Ahab to bring a word of justice and judgment. And in verse 19, we see God's word to Elijah, and you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? So notice what God's passionate about. He, he is demanding justice, not just for the death of the innocent, but for, for the, the wrongful um, seizuring of, of, of his possessions in his land. God cares about human life as well as human possession and property. That's, that's an important thing to God. He says, and you shall say to him, to Ahab, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. That's, that's some imagery, that, that's, that's intense. I mean, God, God wants Ahab to remember this, that justice is coming and he wants us to remember this. This is vivid imagery that God is using and he wants us to understand that the, the visceral feeling we hear, when we think about like dogs looking at blood, that's disgusting. He wants us to understand that that's the same feeling he has when he sees injustice in the world. So God sees the abuse of power that led to the death of innocent Naboth and he steps in to do something, and he is declaring justice, and there's a sense in which we should be thankful, not because we have this this kind of vengeful, like, oh man, he's going to get what's coming to him, but we should desire that wrongs be righted, that the guilty are punished, and that the innocent are defended, and we do see later in in, in 1 Kings chapter 22 uh, that, that Ahab finally gets what's coming to him. He finally falls under the justice and the wrath of God, And Jezebel herself, she also later on, I think it's 2 Kings 9, she also finally gets what is coming to her. And there should be a sense in which we're thankful, not because we celebrate in the loss of life, but because we see justice being enacted, defending Naboth. So in one sense, we ought to be afraid of God's judgment. Because all of us, we we all have an abuse of power. We all find ways that we abuse our own power. But in another sense, we ought to be thankful for God's judgment. We ought to be thankful for God's judgment. Again, we like the idea of God being loving and filled with mercy, but not the idea of God being just and vengeful and just and and bringing judgment. But at the same time, if if we keep scratching at our heart, we we hope there's a God of justice. We hope that, that when we look at the injustices in the world, that we hope that there is someone on the bench, so to speak, of the universe who's going to bring justice to all the injustices that have taken place throughout history? Don't we want there to be a judge who's going to right the wrongs of history? Don't we want a judge who's going to finally make right and set the world to rights? I mean, if not, if, if there's no judge, if there's no judge on the bench, so to speak, of the universe then we are either left to go down the path of despair because, well, what's the point? There's really no hope for justice. Or to go down the path of vengeance, thinking that we must take it into our own hands. Where is justice for those that have not experienced it in this world? I mean, just think about this. According to federal statistics, 211,000 homicides have gone unsolved since 1980. 211,000 homicides have gone unsolved, which is, I mean, and about 5,000 a year continue. Where is the justice for them? Well, I mean, when you think of the families that have survived that, who is their advocate? Or, or think about, uh, I think it's 60% of all sexual assaults in our nation go either unreported or unresolved. Where is justice for them? Or think of our friends in the Shira diocese who who continue to live in the wake, even though many years have passed since the mid-90s of the Rwandan genocide, where almost a million people were slaughtered in a hundred days, that our friends, our brothers and sisters still live in the wake of that, and many of those guilty never came to justice. Where is justice for them? Who is their advocate? How will these wrongs be righted? Think, and think about it, even currently in our world. In our world today, in 2017, there are estimated 2 million children who are exploited in the global sex trafficking industry. This should not be the case. But who is their advocate? Who's defending them? Where will justice come from? Or even think of our history, that the fact that so much of, of our world and our nation, I mean, think about the millions of people, the blood and the tears of the millions of Africans who were taken from their land who were dehumanized, who were exploited through the Atlantic slave trade, and that how this evil injustice continues to have ramifications both individually and institutionally in our world. Where is the justice for these people? And I guarantee you that, that, that the kind of conventional way of thinking of like, well, the God of justice, I don't know if I like that. You know, what are you going to do? Just kind of shrug it off. I guarantee you that none of these victims and none of their family members are saying, what are you going to do? Do you have a place in your theology or of your worldview that there is actually any kind of hope for justice in this world? And if it's not that big of a deal to you, then it probably means that we don't have a real understanding of injustice. Where is justice? Who is the advocate? Croatian theologian, his name is Miroslav Volf, you just sound smart saying his name, but, but he, he, he puts this concept of God's justice in such helpful ways. And he says this, violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. And he's speaking globally. I mean, this doesn't really resonate with us as Westerners. Like, well, no, I mean, doesn't, doesn't the idea that God doesn't take the sword make me more loving? But he's speaking globally here. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. But in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. And that is absolutely true. And and if, and if we push back on that, it means that we live in too comfortable of a world. That we're so, and I'm not saying, hey, you need to go out and be a victim of injustice, but I'm saying we need to be aware of the fact that injustice exists and that people suffer and that they're taken advantage of and in some ways we're complicit in it through our abuse of power. If God looks indifferently at real evil, if he looks indifferently at injustice and just, and just passes over it without any kind of retribution, then he is no God at all. If God is God, he must be just. And if he is not, he is not worthy of our worship or our time whatsoever. Injustice is real, and God has really promised to do something about it. The story of Naboth is is pointing us to the fact that that we look at these injustices, we look at Naboth's story and Naboth's around the world, and we should say this shouldn't be. But we have a hope that something is going to be done about it. So, so, So a question for us to consider is how do we respond How do we respond to Naboth's story and other stories just like Naboth's? What is our response? And the the first thing I would say is is that we need to repent. And, And what I mean by that is that we need to be aware that, yes, we're not necessarily Ahab's and Jezebel's. God forbid that. But it is no less true that we abuse the powers God has given us for our own gain and sometimes at the exploitation, the advantage of others. So we need to repent of the ways in which we abuse our own power in small ways and in big ways. We need to repent of our own entitled hearts that think that we deserve everything that we've worked for and that it's ours and it's mine and no one else's. And if there's anything left over, maybe I'll consider helping other people. We need to repent of our abusive power, of our entitled hearts, as well as our complete disregard for human life. When when, when you see the exploitation of other people and it just doesn't phase us, when we, can, when we can hear a stat that two million children are exploited in our world today in the global sex trafficking industry, and if that doesn't pain us, what on earth is wrong with us? We must repent of our abusive power, our entitled hearts, and our disregard for the well-being of others. But secondly, we should also stand. It's not enough to just simply repent. That's, that's the right first posture, I believe. But we must also be people who stand against injustice who stand against the abuse of power in all of its forms. And yes, I mean, that that means kind of on a global scale when we see injustices in our world, speaking out against it, being a part of or supporting uh, organizations. One, just a great example of International Justice Mission, a phenomenal organization working to end slavery in in our lifetime. Are we people who are supporting that kind of work? But we must also stand against the abuse of power in our workplaces in our communities, in our homes. When I see my oldest daughter abusing her power as the tallest, biggest, and smartest against her sisters, you better believe I'm speaking against her abuse of power. I don't want that to continue, to form a habit that goes down, takes her down a path that will lead to something far more dangerous than trying to cut a cookie to favor her desire. We must stand against and speak up the abuse of power whenever we see it, but we must also stand with the oppressed. We must also be people who are willing to say that I I see the injustices in the world and I want to weep with you. I want to lament with you. I want to grieve with you. I want to understand what you're going through so that I might sympathize and, and, and stop dehumanizing you. Are we able and willing to weep with those who weep? Are we able to see the injustices? And particularly for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we ought to feel a sense of a greater identity, with those who are suffering for it. So in some ways, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, we were enslaved with Israel. When our brothers and sisters who were enslaved through the Atlantic slave trade, we were enslaved with them. We ought to identify with them and sympathize with them and grieve with them. But lastly, in, in addition to repenting, in addition to standing against injustice and standing with the oppressed, we must trust. We must trust that God is just and that he will bring justice to this world. And I don't say that flippantly, I hope you hear me, that that we must believe that God in his infinite wisdom will bring justice to this world, that wrongs will be righted, that the perpetrators will be brought to justice, and that we shouldn't just delight in that because we have a vengeful spirit, but because we desire to see justice brought to this world. And I believe the only way we can avoid the paths of despair or vengeance is to trust and believe in a God who is just. The story of Naboth, I mean, in in so many ways, it should bring about, as I said, the simultaneous tension of being afraid of God's judgment because we know that we abuse our power. But it should also bring about a sense of, of, of gratitude that we should be thankful for God's judgment because he is going to do something about the evil in our world. And yet, it is this very reason that we should be genuinely afraid of God's justice because none of us can stand before God with any hope of pleading a case that we should be exonerated of our sins. None of us stand innocent. None of us can really be Naboth. All of us are guilty. But the good news of what this story also points to is that yes, while we should be afraid of judgment and thankful for it, there is hope that we can be free of judgment. That there is a chance and an opportunity for for the oppressors to be forgiven and to find mercy. And it's not simply by God just throwing it away and by taking injustice and sweeping it under the rug. The story of Naboth is a story that should point us to a greater reality. The innocent blood of Naboth was shed as he was mocked and derided by two wicked men. Naboth died because Ahab chose to abuse his power to take away life so that he might have what he desired. But what this story points us to is the good news of another innocent bloodshed. Another innocent person whose blood was shed between two wicked people, but who who came with the power not to take life, but to give his own life to bring life to us. The story of Naboth should awaken us to the reality that we all stand condemned, that we all abuse power, but the good news is that through Christ Jesus, we can be free of judgment, knowing that Jesus came to be the recipient of God's judgment that we deserve so that you and I, by faith in Christ, might be the recipients of God's love and mercy. That is what this story is pointing us to. Jesus came not to nullify or to diminish or to throw away God's justice. On the contrary, he came to stand in the gap between us and God, to be the recipient of God's judgment that we might be the recipients of his love. There is real evil and real injustice in this world. And we will either find ourselves perpetuating it by, by abusing power in all of its forms and shapes, by, by, by failing to stand against the abusive power, by failing to have a posture of repentance, by failing to trust that God will accomplish all his just desires. We will find ourselves either perpetuating injustice, or we will find ourselves in the shadow of the cross and see that God's judgment came to fall on us, but instead it it fell on Jesus. And that when we see the justice of God expressed towards Christ instead of us, that is what compels us to be people who stand against injustice, who stand for the oppressed. When we understand that Jesus was oppressed for us, it enables us and equips us to be people who stand with those who have been oppressed. Jesus came that we might repent, that we might stand against injustice, that we might trust that he will set the world to rights. And Yes, we should be afraid of and thankful for judgment, but thanks be to God that through faith in Christ Jesus, we can also be freed of judgment and live and partner with God in his work of redeeming and restoring this world and bringing us all to a place where the world will be set to rights. The question for all of us to ask is this, where will we be found? Will we we find ourselves identifying with Ahab, abusing our power for our own gain, or we will find ourselves looking at the injustice of Naboth and saying, this ought not to be. Come, Lord Jesus, do something. And may we be a part of God's plan in bringing justice and peace to this world. But that cannot happen until we trust that in Christ Jesus, the justice that we deserve fell on him, and we got to receive all but grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pause in this moment. Lord, I, I, I pray that, that in this moment we, we, we would be honest and, and th- that we would be aware of the ways in which we abuse the powers that you've given us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would awaken us to see the powers that we have and that we would, that we would have a desire and an, an ability to, and a willingness to to steward and to utilize the things you've given us, Lord, in our our powers and positions and privileges to, to love and serve others, to magnify your name and to seek the common good of all. But Lord, show us where we abuse our power. Show us where we exploit others. Show us where we take advantage of others and fail to see our powers as a means by which you are at work in the world. Lord, would you give us the boldness to stand against injustice, to stand against the abuse of power in all of its shapes and forms. Would we speak out in love, Desiring to see justice brought to this world. And Lord, may we trust that you will set the world to rights, knowing that we don't have to take things into our own hands, trusting that you will do all that you desire. Lord, help us to trust you. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory.
0: Amen. Micah 6 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? and to walk humbly with your God. Go in peace.